Well, this is the second week that we are looking at the song Mary composes while she is expecting our Lord Jesus from her womb. And she really has two big things that she is saying, and she's emphasizing both of them. And so last week we talked about the first big thing she sings about, and this week we'll talk about the second. The first, you might remember if you were here last week, is the the way that his coming topples the proud and lifts up the humble. No matter how high they are, the proud are toppled when he comes. And no matter how low they are, the humble are lifted up as they look to him when he comes. And she spends most of the words in her song talking about that, how it's true for her and true for Israel and true for all those who fear God and true for all those who oppose God. And now we get to the end of the song and she talks about something related but a little different. Uh, she emphasizes this by making it the, the climactic ending of the song. She didn't spend a lot of time on it like she did with the high and low stuff. Now, now she's going to end in a way that says that all that we are learning about Jesus and all that he is, is a fulfillment of promises that God made long ago. The simple way of saying it is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. As we sang earlier, the true and better Isaac, the true and better Adam, the true and better Moses. All those stories, all those promises point to this baby that she is carrying in her womb. Now, before we read those words, I want to look at some things that Luke has been doing already. Because Luke is going to say explicitly that this coming one, this Jesus, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But he has been hinting at it and making his readers long for it with all these beautiful little storytelling moves that he has been doing the whole time. So by the time we get here, a Jewish first century reader that knew their Old Testament really well would just be longing for an answer. Okay, is it like I'm reading this? Is he the one that fulfills all the promises to our fathers? I'm going to show you how he's been building that anticipation and how he finally comes out and says it in these words. Uh, you've probably been walking with us through some of these stories. Some of you have. You know about Zechariah now and Elizabeth. If you've been here in recent weeks, you might know who Mary is. And you may have noticed or you may not have noticed that these characters feel like Old Testament characters. Sometimes it's hard for us to catch that because we wrap it up in Christmas lights and tinsel and Christmas trees. But if you take all that out of it for a minute and you think about Zechariah, a priest in the temple, sounds pretty Old Testament really. Uh, and Elizabeth, uh, a woman who is advanced in age and was barren for many years, given a miraculous child. That's a very Old Testament feel to it. And even Mary and Joseph and the things that they do and the, all the things that happen has this Old Testament feel to it. Even when the angels appear, which is a really Old Testament thing to have happen, uh, they appear and the people are afraid, just like the heroes in the Old Testament were afraid when angels appeared. And then they're told not to be afraid, just like it happens in the Old You almost feel like you're in the Old Testament era. And technically you still are because Jesus hasn't come yet. It gives a reader this feel that the old things are still happening. It harkens the heart back to the old days when God was working in Israel. And then in very, very specific ways, he he alludes to things that are said in the Old Testament, uses words that are used in the Old Testament. 
In verse 17, this is all in chapter 1, in verse 17, an angel is talking to Zechariah and he says, your wife Elizabeth's son, he'll be a great before God and he'll have the spirit of Elijah, which calls the heart back to the days of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children so the people can be prepared. And that is almost an exact quotation of Malachi 4.6 where someone with the spirit of Elijah would cry out that very thing and would turn the hearts of children to the fathers and fathers to their children. So a reader is thinking, oh, so is this the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 6? And then shortly afterward, Zechariah is now promised that his wife will bear a child. And so uh, it's really simple detail in verse 23 and 24. He, after his time in the service is over, he goes home. And then after that, his wife conceives. Um, you know, very simple. Doesn't seem like that even needs to be included in the story. Why would he include that? Uh, well, in the very similar story of Hannah in 1 Samuel, they are also in the house of God when they learn that she is to be blessed with a child. And then it ends the very same way. After this, Elkanah went to his home and his wife conceived. Uh, so just little details like that, calling the mind back to the old stories to say, hmm, the old story, they are connected to this. Something is going on. Uh, we move on a little bit more into verse 25, and Elizabeth, having now conceived this child, says almost exactly what Rachel said when she finally conceived a, a child. Thus the Lord has taken away my reproach among my people. Uh, so now we're thinking about Rachel, like all these little moves he's doing to get us thinking about the Old Testament. In the next story, uh, the angel is speaking to Mary and telling her of the wonderful things that will happen. And there's an old prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, right? And so many of those words are used or repeated in that story. Mary's described as a virgin, I think, three times in that story, two times in close succession to each other, so you don't miss the unique word in that Isaiah prophecy. And that phrase, they shall call his name, you shall call his name, is used in the angel's words. So the reader's mind is going back now to Isaiah 7. Oh, this must be the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. And then, a few verses later in 32 and 33, uh, I'll even read them to you. Uh, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Many similar phrases and similar wording there to 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16. That's the promise to David that he will have a son who will reign forever. Many of those same words, and he'll even be in the house of David, and she's of the house of David. So the reader's mind is called back to that. And you can see how overwhelmed you'd be with this if you just read that chapter and caught all those references. And oh man, like God is pointing me back to all this stuff that happened in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Mary finally rises up to sing her song, and she pulls language from an era that the rest of the book hadn't pulled from, from the Exodus. If you're familiar with the Exodus, you might be familiar with the, the mighty acts of the Lord with his outstretched arm, how he scattered the Israelite army, or I'm sorry, the Egyptian army into the Red Sea and phrases like his mighty arm and his strong arm and scattered into the sea and toppling the proud are prominent in Exodus. And then she says, 
He who is mighty has done great things for me. He has scattered the proud. Start using all these same words over and over again. So now they're thinking about the Exodus. And so by this point in the story, by the time we're at this song, a first century reader who really knows his Old Testament is just getting really excited. Like, is, it, am I reading this right? Like, is what the Lord's about to do? Is he about to fulfill everything in the Old Testament? He's pointing me back to here and 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 to here. Could, could this one be the one or the words spoken to our fathers finally about to be fulfilled? Luke, would you just tell us? Would you just come out and say it? And then Mary ends her song with these words, verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So to that eager first century reader, Luke finally says, yes, that's what I'm saying. The coming of Jesus Christ fulfills God's promises to his people. And so through the ending of that song, the Spirit of the Lord, through Mary the songwriter, through Luke the writer here, the Spirit of the Lord is moving us to worship Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. I only have one thing to tell you this morning, and that is that the coming of Jesus Christ fulfills God's promises to his people. We take that from these words, the coming of Jesus Mary is, of course, writing about the coming of Jesus. She is expecting herself, and she is expecting Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the story here, the coming of Jesus. What does she say it does? Well, he remembers his mercy in the second line, as he spoke to our fathers. So him coming is a remembrance of the mercy that he promised to her fathers, to Old Testament Israel. To who? To his people, I'm saying. And that is because she says in the first line, in verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel. And then in the last line of verse 56, to Abraham and his offspring forever. In her day, that's the people of God. And those phrases are used to describe the church today, the people of God. We are offspring of Abraham. We are the people of God. So the coming of Jesus Christ fulfills God's promises to his people. If we will believe that, that will change so much of how we look at our Bibles, how we look at Jesus himself, himself, and how we look at our own lives. And so we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning looking at how does simply knowing that change how we look at the Old Testament. And then we'll spend less time each on how does it change how we look at Jesus himself and how does it change how we look at our own lives. Let's dive first into the Old Testament. How does, if Jesus coming fulfills all of God's promises to his people, shorter version would say Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. How does that change how you look at your Old Testament that you may even have in your hand right now? Many of you, I know, read the Bible through every year. It's a wonderful habit and tradition that many of our church have. Some of you have been reading through the Bible every year for longer than I have been alive, and you're going to do it again next year, right? And those of you that do that, you know what the rhythm is. Right now, you're in that little sliver of the year that's New Testament, and January 1 is going to come again and back to Genesis 1, right? And so you're going to be in nine months in the Old Testament. When you're there, 
how do you look at that Old Testament you're going to spend nine or so months reading? And others of you are younger, some of you, I think a few of you, I have been reading the Bible every day for your entire life, and you're coming of age and looking at your copy of the Scriptures and saying, okay, I want to read this thing every day. I want to make that a habit. What do, what do I do? Like, I mean, it can't be that I just like read and then close it and that's it. There's got to be something here. How do I look at what I'm reading? Especially when some of those stories are awkward and strange and we don't quite know what to do with them. Well, simply reading your Old Testament like Mary read hers can give you a lot of help there. She is putting together everything the angel is telling her. She evidently knows her Old Testament very well, as much as she has referred to it in this song, rolling it all together and has seen it for her whole life as a story of promises. God promised Eve this, and he promised Abraham this, and he promised Moses this, and he promised David this, and one day God's going to keep those promises. That's how she views her Old Testament. Then an angel appears to her and tells her everything that he tells her, that her child is going to be great, the son of the Most High, and she starts putting all this together and saying, oh, it's it's not just that he's going to keep it one day, he's going to keep it through my son, through, through Jesus. So she now sees her Old Testament as a story of promises that get greater and greater that will be fulfilled in Jesus. And that's how you need to see your Old Testament too. It's a long story, a big saga, and it's a big series of promises that will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That means that in order to understand any individual story you're reading or any individual song, you've got to have a pretty good idea of where you are along that story of escalating promises. So there are kind of big key points in the Old Testament. You can kind of think of those as thumbtacks on the wall or markers on the wall. And you got to know, where am I here and what's being promised here? Now, those of you that are younger, if you're my age or younger, you may have an advantage in seeing the Old Testament this way because you probably grew up in a couple of big fiction stories that have a huge world-building universe to them. I'm thinking of Star Wars, right? You can't, you don't sit down and watch Star Wars. It's like 50 billion hours now of content, right? You sit down and you watch a movie of Star Wars or an episode of a show. Uh, Similar with things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, the Marvel movies. Nobody watches them all at once. You get them in little slivers through little stories that are part of a big story. And when you do that, you're not even thinking about it, but you're sitting down, you're watching, you're reading, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, where are we in the big story, right? And you interpret everything you see or everything you read based on where you are in the big story. So younger folks, you might have an advantage in doing this because you're already doing it with some of your entertainment, right? Some of the things that you enjoy. You might sit down and watch episode three of Star Wars and know what's going to happen. I'm not going to ruin it for anybody who's never seen it. But everything that you are watching Anakin and Obi-Wan and Palpatine do, you're thinking about what's going to happen. You're interpreting it through that lens of what you know is going to happen. So what Mary's encouraging us to do is to read our Old Testaments the very same way. Okay, I'm reading about uh, Elijah. Well, where is that in the big story, right? Has, has David already been promised what he's been promised? Have they already gone into exile or not? Right, Locate it in the big story 
And then you can have an easier time interpreting what's going on and what the Lord is doing. So let me give you then, through Mary's lens here, just a couple of key points in the Old Testament, key promises. It is, again, a story of escalating promises. There are promises given before Abraham, Eve, Adam, even Satan get a promise early in the first three chapters of Genesis. You don't want to get Satan's promise. It's not a good one, but the other ones are really good. Um, Then Mary starts with Abraham, right, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Abraham is an old man. He's advanced in years. His wife is uh, past childbearing age. She never had a child. And if you were here for our Genesis series, you've heard this many times, right? The Lord promises him he will have not just a son, but offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. They will become a great and mighty nation. Other nations will come from him. And one of his offspring will be a blessing to every tribe on earth. So once that happens in Genesis 12, and then is repeated in chapter 17 and a few other places, now the plot line changes. Now the plot line is, how is God going to do that? And everything we're reading about is answering that question. Against odds, how is the Lord going to keep this promise to Abraham? So there's your big point in the story. So that means maybe you're reading a story about, uh, maybe you read the story where Abraham uh, lies and lets his wife be given into the king's harem in uh, a foreign land. You might be familiar with that story. You might read that and be like, what? Like, what's, that's a confusing story, right? Abraham goes into a foreign land and he's scared that the men of the land are going to kill him so they can have his wife. And so he lies, says, she's not my wife, she's my sister, and then gives her into the king's harem and puts her in great danger and everybody in great danger. And you're looking at him like, what a scumbag. Like, what's, what's he doing? Like that, it, so it's, it, it, morally, it's awful what he's doing. But if you remember the promise, God had promised that through Sarah, all these offspring would come. He's not just giving his wife into the harem. He's giving up on the promise. He's not trusting God to protect him and keep the promise. So if you remember where you are in the big story, what's being promised and how Jesus fulfills that promise, then you can understand what's going on in the story better. It's not just a moral tale, men protect your wives, wives the Lord will protect you when your wife doesn't. Those lessons are there, but there's a bigger thing going on there. When it looks like God won't keep his promise, he will, just like he made sure Sarah was delivered back to him and the promise could remain intact. So we look at that promise, we interpret everything that comes after it through that promise, and then we look to Jesus and say, here is the one who finally fulfills it. Years later, Abraham's descendants have indeed become many nations. One of them is the nation of Israel, who is enslaved by the Egyptians, and the Lord brings them out of slavery and gives to them his law. He writes their nation's law for them. He takes the true right and wrong that is embedded in the universe, the moral law, applies it to their lives and situations, says, here is how you live. And there's a promise that comes along with the law. The promise is, obey me and be blessed, disobey me and be cursed. So whichever one they do, they're going to get it. Now then some things happen after that that are a little confusing, but everything that happens after that is a fulfillment of that promise. If Israel obeys the Lord, they'll be blessed. If they don't obey the Lord, they will be cursed. So then maybe we're reading Psalm 1, and sometimes you read Psalm 1 and it it almost feels like 
health and wealth gospel or something. You're like, wait, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. So here's someone who receives God's word and God's law and loves it. And it says, he will be like a tree that is planted by the river. It yields its fruit in season and its leaves don't wither, right? So basically, the one who receives God's law and follows it flourishes, right? And we look at that and we're like, now wait a minute. Like, sometimes you can do the right thing and not good things happen to you in the world. Like, what's, what's going on? Well, if you remember where they are sitting under God's promise, obey me and be blessed, disobey me and be cursed. For ancient Israel, it really did work like that. Now, in many ways, this is true in our lives as well. But as long as we are looking at what is being promised and how it is coming true, for them, obedience to the law did lead to temporary flourishing. To them, their vats would overflow. They'd have lots of babies and lots of material wealth if they obeyed God's law. So the promises are coming true little by little. We can confuse ourselves if we forget that, but if we remember it, then we can understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Years later... Israel would sit under the law for a long time, and eventually it would crown a king. First King Saul, he doesn't do great. He gets replaced by King David. King David becomes mighty. He loves the Lord. Really, those words in Psalm 1 could describe him and his life, even he loves the Lord so deeply. And the Lord makes him a promise. He says, when you lie down and sleep with your fathers, when you die and go home, your son will reign after you. You won't just get a long kingship, you get a dynasty, right? And after him, a son after him, and after him, a son after him, you will never lack a son to sit on the throne. And then the way these promises get referred to later, it's like one of his sons is going to rule the whole earth and do it forever. And so David is promised then that his son will rule the earth forever. And we look ahead to Jesus and say, well, there's the fulfillment of that, right? The one who rules the earth forever as a son of David. Well, that helps us understand many stories that come afterward. There's this one uh, unique story where one of the descendants of David is ruling as king, and a wicked woman named Athaliah rises up, kills David's entire house, kills the king, kills them all, wipes them all out, and reigns as queen herself. Uh, But there's a really courageous servant who hides one baby named Joash. And so secretly, one descendant of David still lives on. No one knows about it. And then when that child is seven years old, uh, the child comes out into public and they crown this child king of Jerusalem. Now, if we just look at that as an isolated story, well, yeah, there's moral lessons there. Don't kill your family for power. Like you can find moral lessons there. But what the Lord is doing is preserving a descendant of David so that Christ will still come and so that his promise will be kept to David. So everything after David, we're interpreting in the light of how is God keeping his promise to David. So then use those big promises, Abraham, Moses, David, as big bookmarks, big turns in the story, and be asking as you read those stories and those songs after, how is what was promised before being fulfilled today? That's how we read our Old Testaments the way that Mary read her Old Testament. 
I hope you can see that that dispels some of the myths that we have floating around in American church culture about the Old Testament. Uh, I wonder if you've ever felt like or heard that the Old Testament was the time when God was mean and the New Testament is the time when God is nice. You ever hear people talk like that? And so we just kind of don't worry about the Old Testament because that was back when God was cranky and mean. And now in the New Testament, like smiley Jesus was walking the earth and everything was just great. Now, if you read your Bible enough, it will dispel that because Jesus says some difficult things in the New Testament also. And the Old Testament saints were the ones that loved the Lord, were happy people that loved worshiping. I would love to have lived then under that kind of lifestyle. Reading it deeply will dispel that, but even more, if we can see it like Mary sees it, if we can see it like Luke sees it, as a a big, long story of many promises that Jesus fulfills, then we can interpret it rightly. Then we know what to do with the Mosaic Law. Okay, it was a promise to those people. It's not binding on us, but it gives us wisdom. Okay, and then, then we don't have to worry about all those little myths and misconceptions we have about it. There are some teachers today, and I would call this false teaching today, though it's prominent evangelical pastors doing it, uh, who would go as far as to say that we must unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Uh, some preachers we might even recognize would say that, uh, that, that, that the Old Testament is done, it's over with, let's pull it out of our Bibles, unhitch from it, and then we'll be able to drive faster along the highway. But if the Old Testament is a series of promises fulfilled in Jesus, friends, I'm clinging to those promises, right? I am not unhitching from any of that. The the true son of David, the true son of Abraham, the true son and keeper of the law has come to be with us. There's exactly what I'm hitched to, right? The one that the Old Testament points to. So if we're, if we're looking at our Old Testaments in light of Jesus Christ, we're going to cling to him more and more. We're not going to unhitch from any of that. So that's the first way that what Mary has to say here changes our lives, changes how we look at the Old Testament. If you're starting a Bible reading plan in January, look for those promises. Look for how they come true in temporal ways in the Old Testament. Look for how they finally come true in Jesus Christ. You'll find a much richer time reading your Old Testaments that way. Okay, second. How do Mary's words change how we look at Jesus himself? She's thinking about Jesus, so it's going to make sense that, that it's going to change how we look at Jesus. Uh, we can, because of Mary's words, because of many other parts in the Bible, worship Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We have such a richer view of him. We understand him so much better because of our Old Testaments. We can, because of that promise to Abraham, look at Jesus as the true offspring of Abraham, right? So he was told that one of his offspring would be a blessing to every tribe on earth, right? And for so many years, missionaries have gone all over the world with a confidence That the Lord was going to bless their work because, well, he's making for himself a people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And so, yeah, I can go to every tribe and tongue and he's working through me to do it. We have even more confidence if we remember that that promise was made 3,000 years earlier to Abraham that one of his descendants would bless every tribe on earth. 
the work of missionaries today, the work of those people we see in the IMB videos, was promised by God, if I have my math right, 5,000 years ago to Abraham. Your offspring will be a blessing to every tribe on earth. Now that will deepen your view of Jesus Christ, who stands on the hilltop and says, go and make disciples of all nations, of whom it is said in Revelation, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you have, you have made for yourself a people of all nations. Mary would come right behind that and say, just like he promised Abraham, right? just like was promised of old. Now that can take our view of Jesus and just multiply. We can see how much more wonderful he is. Not just as everything the New Testament says he is, which would be enough, but as the full fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, the true offspring and descendant who blesses every nation on earth. If Moses taught the people from God that obeying him under the law would lead to blessing and disobedience would lead to cursing, we can see Jesus and worship Jesus as the true fulfillment of the law. The only one who ever kept the law, right? The big problem with the law and with the laws with us, right? We didn't keep it. Israel didn't keep it and follow it. That was the problem. And so our only hope is that somebody who's better than us would come along and keep it in our place. And that either somebody else or that same someone would pay for all of the sins and cursing we had accrued for ourselves by keeping the law. And so as we read what Jesus did, how perfectly he kept the law, his willingness to die as a sacrifice for our sins, to pay for our sins, we begin to see that he is the one who kept the law perfectly, earning us blessing. And he is the one upon whom the curses for our sins were placed. As the law says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, right? Why, why was he put there on that cross? To bear the curse that we had accrued for our law breaking, for our sins against God. So we can worship him then as the perfect keeper of the law who earned that blessing for us, and the perfect one who died in our place and bore our curses for us. So now when we're reading back in Deuteronomy about all the blessings that come upon those who keep the law, your vats will be bursting, your, your, your fields will be full, you will sit in happiness, you will sit under your own fig tree for thousands of years. We can say, that is coming to me because Jesus kept the law for me. And when we read the curses, we can say that was taken off of me and put upon Jesus Christ because he bore those curses for me. All right, so, the, so the gospel message would simply say that for those who would trust in Jesus Christ in faith, he will bear the weight of all of our sins and he will give us all the credit for his righteousness. And I call you to believe that even right now. Whether you're trusting in that for the first time right now, whether you've been trusting in it for years, you can hear Mary come along and say, just like he promised to our fathers, just like he said he was going to do in the law, obedience led to blessing for us. Our disobedience led to cursing for him. 
Now that'll warm your view of Jesus. That'll just make your heart burn a flame for this Jesus that we worship. And then if she says to Abraham and his offspring forever, uh, then we can go down the line to David too, right? And see that promise. We talked about this a little last or a few weeks ago, right? That promised king who's going to come lead with justice. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord and he won't judge by what his ears hear and what his eyes see. He will judge in justice. He will reign forever. No one will ever challenge his throne. That son of David who is coming, we can worship Jesus Christ as that mighty king. How much do we long for a ruler just in Indiana or just in the United States who would lead us with justice? And if we could find a just leader, how much would we want him to gain power and his enemies never be able to stop him? How much do we rejoice when our guy wins in office, right? Because we think he's gonna bring us justice. But when our Lord comes, no one will stop him. No political opponent will be able to stand against him. And he will rule with true justice forever. So we can just burst with joy for him, waiting for him to come and be an answer to all of our political problems. We can worship Jesus as the offspring of Abraham, as the true keeper of the law and fulfillment of the law, and as the true son of David, in part because of Mary's words here, just as he spoke to our fathers. Christians, you have all you need to sing along with Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For the true son of Abraham has come blessing every nation. The true keeper of the law has come to earn blessing for me and take my cursing from me. And the true son of David has come to rule forever. There is a reason to sing and shout in worship. And those of you who aren't Christians yet but are considering him, you can have all of those things right now. Jesus stands before you ready to receive you. If you have longed for someone who would bless people from every nation on earth without discrimination, prejudice, or racism, or if you have longed for someone who will do right at every juncture and is just just better than we are morally, or if you have longed for a good leader to lead us, you have all of that in Jesus who stands ready with his hands open to you. All you must do is receive him in faith. So there's how Mary's words change how we look at Jesus Christ. We worship him all the more. And finally, these words change how we look at our own lives and our own future. Now, some of you may have caught some of the rubs so far. Some of these things I have talked about have not actually happened yet, right? There's no king ruling the earth in justice that we can see visibly here on earth yet. And some of you pay attention to the lyrics of Christmas carols, and you notice that some of that stuff hasn't come true yet, right? Uh, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found, right? We'll sing that with joy, and then we'll go back to our coworkers that hate us and jobs that are marred by the fall, and then go have Christmas dinner with family that we argue with. And then it's like, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is. That doesn't sound like it's here yet, right? Uh, So many more that are just that way. 
what's going on there is that Jesus has come and left, and he's coming again. Uh, The first time he came, he secured these promises for us, and he gave us a preview of what those promises will look like when they're fulfilled. So we got them secured, and we got a preview the first time he came. Second time he comes, he fulfills them once for all, no more question. It's all a done deal, and we get them all. So that means then that that very first time he secures all those promises by living, by dying, by rising from the dead, by ascending up into heaven to rule forever. He will not have to die again when he comes again. He has secured the blessings for you. Uh, He has secured the kingship. He will not have to rise again in order to secure it. It's a done deal. So it's past tense secured. But we don't have all the benefits yet until he returns. He's going to come back. And then when he does, he'll set up his kingdom forever. Sorrow will be gone. Pain will be gone. Health problems will be gone. Sin will be gone. All of our problems will be gone forever. And we'll worship him just like these promises painted forever. We wonder sometimes what that's going to look like. What's it going to look like when the coming of Jesus fulfills God's promises, right? Just like Mary said the first time, it's true the second time too. At his coming, the promises are fulfilled. When he comes, it's going to look like those miracles in that ministry you see in the Gospels. Part of what he's doing there is giving us a preview of the coming kingdom. So that means that that day when the kingdom comes, it's going to look like a blind man hearing, open your eyes and see. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to sound like someone who has not walked in 25 years hearing, get up and walk. That's what it's going to be like. Or like the man whose daughter has died, hearing from the lips of Jesus, don't, don't weep, the child's not dead, she's asleep. Child, arise. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like the woman who was caught in adultery, hearing from the lips of Jesus, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's going to look like the waves of the sea facing their master and hearing, be still and the calm and peace of creation listening to the voice of Jesus. At the coming of Jesus, all those promises are fulfilled. And the best picture of it you have is his first earthly ministry. So when we look at our lives and we say, still broken around here, still things going on, The blessings do not yet flow as far as the curse is found. We've got a picture in him of what's coming our way. The promises that we are waiting for. Christian, every promise you're waiting on God to fulfill for you will come to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why we have Advent. We are waiting for the coming of Jesus. That moves the heart to say along with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices with God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
Let's, let's pray that along with her.